this edition of Back to Basics with guest pastor Char Broderson. The choice for the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? I think that is a heart-searching question that we have to ask ourselves again and again and again. What story, what grand narrative are we being shaped by? Whose image are we being made? Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Char Broderson continues our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Join us as Pastor Char begins his teaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, in a message titled, Spirit-Filled Jesus, Spirit-Filled Christians. And now, here's Pastor Char. Well, we are teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians this theme of everyday discipleship. And last week we began a mini series within this series, and we're calling it The Church and the Spirit. Now, I think it's really good to be reminded each time that we gather to hear teachings out of 1 Corinthians, just something about the background of this letter. And I'll begin by saying this is a letter written by Paul to a local church that lived in the midst of the Roman Empire. And so already we can understand that this is not a whole lot different than this local church. There are ways in which this church in Corinth evidences of God's spirit, of God's life, of his presence at work in them, transformation, sanctification, ways in which Jesus was being put on display through their lives, and yet there were also clear indications of the deep roots that sin and their formal lifestyle still had in their lives and now being manifested in the church. So it had been reported to Paul by Chloe's household that all this stuff is going on, that there are sexual issues, that there are spiritual, social issues going on in the church. And I know, sometimes reading Paul's letters, it feels like Paul just has issue after issue after issue. But the key issue that Paul really is getting at again and again and again is that the Corinthians had failed to recognize the real life implications of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Of understanding the type of king that Jesus was and Jesus is. He's not like Caesar. They had failed to understand the real life implications of God's kingdom being at work among them. It's not like the Roman Empire. It is vastly different. And so Paul writes to them to bring them back into alignment with the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom of God. Now, we don't have the same issues that Corinth had, but we have issues. Absolutely, we have issues. And that's true of this church, and that's true also of the church globally, nationally. And I think Leslie Newbegin, he has just such wise insight when he says this. The choice for the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? 
And I think that is a heart-searching question that we have to ask ourselves again and again and again. What story, what grand narrative are we being shaped by? Whose image are we being made into? Now, in chapter 11, verse 2, Paul turned his attention to the worship gatherings of the Corinthian church. And he's going to address how these gatherings are to work all the way through chapter 14. But in chapter 12, this is an exposition of the work of the Spirit in the life of the church. And Paul summarizes an astonishing variety of manifestations of the Spirit and of his work in the life of the church. Now, the common teaching is that Paul is teaching about spiritual gifts, which are supernatural endowments of the Holy Spirit given to believers at or after conversion to fulfill the mission of the church. But really, that's kind of a narrow view of what's going on here. It doesn't really come close to the rich diversity of the Spirit's work that Paul begins to unpack. That could be through lifelong abilities, newly given abilities, like You know, it's not like, well, the Spirit gave you a gift and then that's it till kingdom come. Like, we should always be open and expectant to how the Spirit of God wants to work and what new things he wants to do in our lives. So these could be lifelong abilities, newly given abilities, or momentary manifestations. I'm really excited in the next couple weeks to talk about this. But Paul specifically in chapter 12 is focusing on the way that the Spirit actually might interrupt our gathering and might have these explosive ways in which he manifests himself and his presence in the midst of God's people. Now, the common translation of verse one is that Paul is talking about spiritual gifts or gifts of the spirit. But this is actually misleading because the word gifts is not in the original Greek of this verse. Paul speaks instead of spirituals which is a focus on the things of the Spirit. And so I'd like you just to kind of suspend your judgments for a moment and hear this. 1 Corinthians 12, though we've been taught that it's just about, just about spiritual gifts, is actually really about how the Spirit moves forward the mission of Jesus through the followers of Jesus. How God is gifted his church in many different ways, many different abilities, how God is present in his church to pour his life and love into us that we might grow into what God has purchased us to be, but then we might overflow out into the world the great love and goodness of God. You see how the spirit moves forward then the mission of Jesus through the followers of Jesus. You'll notice though that Paul mentions that as he just even begins to talk about spirituals or things of the spirit, there's a lot of confusion around it. Confusion around what the spirit might prompt someone to speak out. Well, the confusion is because the Corinthians, as Paul mentions, have brought their own pagan backgrounds of worship into the Christian worship gathering. Now, Paul wants them to understand that the work of the Spirit and the purpose of the Spirit, though there might be parts of the worship gathering that might be similar to the pagan worship that they came out of, that the person, work, and purposes of the Spirit are vastly different. The purpose and work of the Spirit is love, which Paul will unpack in chapter 13. 
Love from God pouring through us into the lives of others. And as I said, then in, out into the life of the world. But we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. Now, there was a lot of confusion surrounding the work of the Spirit. And I mean, couldn't we all raise our hands and be like, ditto, yeah, that's me. Like, that's many of the churches I've been in. That's my whole Christian life. I am confused about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Well, I think Eugene Peterson's interpretation from the message was really clear in seeing Paul's point here. So I just wanna read it quickly. He says, what I want to talk about now is the various ways God's spirit gets worked into our lives. This is complex and often misunderstood. Can I get an amen? Amen. But I want you to be informed and knowledgeable. Remember how when you didn't know God, you were led from one phony God to another, never knowing what you were doing, just doing it because everybody else did it? Well, it's different in this life. God wants to use our intelligence to seek to understand as well as we can. For instance, by using your head, you know perfectly well that the Spirit of God would never prompt anyone to say, Jesus be damned. Nor would anyone be inclined to say, Jesus is master. Jesus is Lord and King without the insight of the Holy Spirit. So listen to what Peterson, the way that he interprets and paraphrases this. Corinthians, I want you to know that life in the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in our lives is all about Jesus being King. It's all about him being master and Lord. So with all the confusion in Corinth, and the double confusion in our own lives and our own experiences about the Spirit, I think a really great place to start in clearing up confusion about the Spirit is in the life of Jesus. Before we get into the rest of 1 Corinthians 12, I wanna talk to you about Spirit-filled Jesus. Now, I imagine maybe that phrase is unfamiliar to you. You don't hear that often. Oh, Spirit-filled Jesus. Now we hear Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Savior. We hear, you know, Jesus, the teacher. We hear many different kind of titles, you know, or associations connected with Jesus, but spirit-filled Jesus. In John's gospel, chapter three, verse 34, John, the baptizer, is speaking about how Jesus is now on the scene and it's time for him to pass the torch to Jesus. Remember, this is that famous passage. He must increase, I must decrease. And in the culmination of this passage, he's, John is talking about Jesus, and he makes this incredible statement. He says, for the one who God has sent speaks the word of God. And listen, for God gives him the spirit without limit. In other words, Jesus was Spirit-filled without limit, without borders. And we need to understand that this is unprecedented in the biblical story. Never before have we heard of this. We've heard of the Spirit of God rushing upon and clothing Gideon or rushing upon Saul. We've heard about David being anointed with the Holy Spirit. We've even heard about double portions of Elijah's spirit and power. But all of that pales in comparison to what we are being told here by John the baptizer, that this is the one who will possess the spirit without any measure 
or limit. The Spirit of God will be on the scene like never before in the history of the world. And as you read through the Gospels, you see that's exactly what happens. The Holy Spirit is all over the life of Jesus. And this is quite incredible because at this point in the history of Israel, there has been 400 years of silence. That means no prophets and no prophecy. That means no miracles, no divine revelation, no fillings of the Spirit at least that we know of. Silence. And then it is as if the pages of the gospel open up and there is this explosion of the spirits similar to what we see in the creation account. The spirit of the, of the, of the living God hovering over the face of the waters, ready to act and work and move. So first we have, in the story of Jesus, Mary, who is a young virgin from Nazareth, and she is told by the angel Gabriel that she's gonna give birth to God's anointed savior. And when she asks how that could possibly be because she's a virgin, the angel replies, the Holy Spirit. Whoa, 400 years, we haven't heard about this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then one of my favorite sections in all of the Gospels, Jesus walks into his hometown, it's a Saturday, walks into the synagogue and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. Like, oh wow, what's gonna happen here? He finds a place where it's written, and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim that this is the year, the year of the Lord's favor, the time that everyone has waited for. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and Everyone is looking at him, it says. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Wow, this is it. The time like no other, the spirit of God is present and on the move in the person of Jesus Christ. We're also told that Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, filled with the joy of the spirit that he performed his ministry in the power of the Spirit. Performed his ministry in the power of the Spirit. What is that ministry? Feeding and filling. Healing and comforting. Restoring all that sin has broken and ravaged. We're told by the writer of Hebrews that Jesus offered himself to God in his sacrificial death by the Spirit. And finally, Paul in Romans 8 and Peter and his epistle tells us that Jesus was resurrected to life by the Spirit of God. Now, I don't want us to miss what the New Testament is trying to tell us. And that is that Jesus' life is the Spirit-filled life par excellence. So here it is. If you want to know what the Spirit of God looks like, 
What the Spirit of God does in the life of a person, look at Jesus. He is the Spirit-filled human. Whoa, 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 Spirit-filled human? I think sometimes we dismiss Jesus, and maybe even me just saying that Jesus is a Spirit-filled human kind of gives some of you like a little jolt, and you're just like, whoa, whoa, wait, okay, are we getting into some heresy here? So in talking about Jesus, I think what we often do is we give Jesus kind of this excuse. Oh, Jesus does all this. Jesus is tempted, but, you know, without sin, and he can do all these miraculous things, and he can give his life. He can turn the other cheek. He can do it all because he's God incarnate, because he's the second person of the triune Godhead. So being spirit-filled is just kind of a bonus, an add-on, or an appendices that the scriptures is kind of letting us know, like this, like, Not only can he walk on water, folks, but he is also spirit-filled. And it's just like, who cares? Like, who cares that he's spirit-filled? But I believe that this thinking is incorrect. See, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, that when the Son of God came into this world as a human, he emptied himself. And I wonder if we ever ask the question, of what? Of what? Did the eternal son of God empty of himself? Simon Ponsambi, in his book, God Inside Out, I think he has some incredible insight into this. He says, the preexistent divine son of God of his own volition emptied himself. And this Greek word means to strip, empty, deprive, or render to no effect, inoperable, and took to himself the form of a servant. His divinity was not lost, but it also was not exercised. Jesus took upon himself the form of fallen human nature, mortal and corruptible, and lived, directed, and dependent on the Spirit. The Word became flesh, he says, and exercised power through the Spirit. Wow, what a thought, and not on his own. The son self-emptying means that Jesus was compelled to rely on the spirit. The son decided not to make use of divine attributes independently, but experience what it would mean to be truly human. What does it look like for a human being to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be under the control of the Spirit, to have power of the Holy Spirit working through them? It looks an awful lot like Jesus. That is the answer. Well, what about all the amazing miracles that Jesus performed? Isn't that Jesus showing that he's God? And then sometimes we're like, well, okay, sometimes like Jesus is like, I'm human, I'm God, I'm God, I'm human, I'm human, I'm God, I'm I'm human, right? And we're like, which one? Which circle is he jumping into it? In which moments, right? So isn't all these miraculous deeds, these signs, these wonders, Jesus showing that he's God? Maybe. Certainly it is Jesus showing that he is the one and same God of Israel in the sense that all his works line up with Yahweh's works and character seen in the biblical witness, But I believe scripture supports that the power behind the miracles comes from Jesus being the true and perfect human who is filled with the spirit of God rather than deriving from his divine power. Think about what Adam and Eve were intended to be. Human beings 
filled with the Spirit of God, ruling over God's creation. See, we're told by Paul that Jesus is the second Adam. He's everything that Adam was not. He's everything that Adam should have been. Could it be that the power to direct a multitude of fish into a net comes from Jesus being the true human, ruling over God's creation? Could it be that the restorative power at work in Jesus is actually because he is what humanity was intended to be and what humanity will be? Please, don't miss understand, please don't mishear me, I absolutely affirm the full divinity of Jesus. I just think sometimes the church forgets that Jesus was fully human as well. I think we often overemphasize the divinity of Jesus to the point where he isn't human at all, but this is the exact opposite of what the gospels are telling us. He gets it. He knows your difficulty he has walked your path. And he didn't just, you know, take a ball. He didn't just like, you know, oh, you know, I'm gonna kind of pass on this one. This difficult human thing that, you know, sinful people have to go through, well, I'm gonna do the God thing in this scenario. No. He fully subjects himself to the human experience and operates under the power of the Holy Spirit. He was subject to it all. Scripture shows us tired, thirsty, hungry, sad, angry, tempted and tried, even subject to suffering and death. And we are told this was in order to be our substitute, our great high priest, but also in order to be our example of what it looks like to live in the Spirit and by the Spirit. You want to know what God wants for your life as just a human being? It looks a lot like Jesus. You want to know what it means to be a follower of God? To be on the mission of God? It looks a lot like Jesus. Jesus is the true, the truest human who ever lived. The spirit-filled human. See, I believe it is Jesus as the spirit-filled human that works signs and wonders. It speaks with an authority like no other living person. It is Jesus by the power of the spirit that he overcomes the devil and the temptations in the wilderness, fulfills the prophetic visions of the prophets of the restorative healing power and justice of God. And finally, it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus established the kingdom of God through his death and his resurrection. Everything that Jesus does in his life and ministry is in the spirit and by the spirit. So I hope that this might clear up a little bit of confusion about who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does in our lives and then help us build a foundation for what the Spirit does in the church. The moving of the Holy Spirit is always in concert with bringing glory to God, drawing people to the revelation of God's goodness.
For the month of March, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Pastor Brian. With all the chaos, unrest, and uncertainty in our world, behind it all is the unseen realm where a spiritual battle is being waged. And this spiritual battle not only affects the world collectively, but even our lives individually. This month's book, The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Pastor Brian, will give you an understanding of the battle that is raging behind the scenes. You will understand the enemy who is waging war against you, his tactics, and how you can be equipped to emerge victorious. As people of God, we must be aware of the spiritual battle we're all involved in, the sophisticated ways in which we're constantly being attacked, and the provision for victory we have in Jesus. If you want to be equipped for the spiritual battle we're engaged in, or to be able to help others become equipped, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Pastor Brian. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from our guest pastor, Char Broderson, as we study together in the book of 1 Corinthians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.